morning. Good morning, good morning. I probably don't need this, but I don't know if I'm on. I'm on. So on. Well, I'm happy to be here and enjoying your festive green this morning. I was uh, telling my friends over here when I was a teacher, the St. Patrick's Day was a big day, and I put footprints across the kids' desks and, you know, rearranged the name tags, and this is kind of the, the grown-up version this morning, so I'm happy to be here. I'm going to jump right in. There were five chapters uh, this week, so there's a, a lot here. Um, we've been following the story of Isaac's offspring and seeing the many twists and turns in these generations, and now here we are in the next few chapters, picking up the story of Jacob and his family. They've settled in the land of Canaan, where Jacob's father Isaac had lived. He has 12 sons by his four wives, as we've already heard, and we're focusing this morning on the 11th son, Joseph. Joseph has 10 older half-brothers and one younger brother who was born to his mother, Rachel. Rachel passed away in childbirth, so Joseph is being raised by the three other women in his family, and we're introduced to Joseph in the very first verses of chapter 37, and he's 17 years old. So let's think back for a minute to when we were 17. For some of us, that's a little farther back in the rearview mirror than for others. At 17, I was a junior in high school, was in the marching band. I played the flute, and I carried the letter C in Concord. I had a boyfriend. And I was worried about what to wear to junior prom, like many girls my age at the time. Playing at the box office was Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. On the radio was The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand and Benny and the Jets by Elton John. The headlines of the day, Richard Nixon was forced to resign after Watergate. And the 55 mile an hour speed limit was imposed to save gas. Gas prices at the time, anybody want to guess? <laughs> About 42 cents a gallon. Oh, my word is right. <laughs> but Joseph's life was quite different. He was helping his older brothers, herding the flocks. And in verse 2, we read that he brings his father a bad report. So we have the youngest brother tattling on the older brothers, which was about not to go well. And it doesn't. And in the next two verses, sets the stage for how this story plays out. In verse 3 through 4, Israel, which was Jacob's new name, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the child of his old age. And he made him an elaborately embroidered coat. When his brothers realized that their father loved him more than them, they grew to hate him. They wouldn't even speak to him. We know that openly showing favoritism to a child or a grandchild can have devastating results. The parent here, Jacob, seems to be responsible for the division between these half-brothers. And if you are parenting or grandparenting families that include half or step-siblings, it can be especially tricky to navigate these relationships. I've been in this situation and encourage you to think carefully about how you can best support these delicate sibling relationships. There are not many stories in the Bible that are made into a musical, but this story did. 
Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was a Tim Rice, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical comedy written in 1965. But the story is anything but funny, as we'll soon see. Most garments at the time were quite plain and ordinary looking, but this coat was ornate and colorful and had, was translated to mean big sleeves. So there we can see Joseph and his big sleeves. This would have portrayed that the person wearing it would have authority, a position of being in charge. The color purple would have signaled royalty or someone with riches. So Jacob, having experienced his own father's favoritism toward his brother Esau, should have understood the anger and frustration that this can cause between brothers. Instead of breaking the cycle, he ups the ante. We don't know what Joseph was thinking about all this attention, but we do know he was 17 and perhaps a bit cocky. He was the same age as Ishmael was when he snickered at his baby brother's weaning party. So it isn't hard to think he might have had a bit of an attitude. After all, he had just tattled on his 10 older brothers and was now being clearly set apart as dad's favorite. To continue, we see in the next several verses that Joseph has a dream and decides to share it with his brothers, causing them to hate him even more. He probably should have just written his dreams down in his journal had journaling been invented then, <laughs> but he didn't, and the results are more anger, jealousy, and deceit. We're not told if this is a God-given dream, but we know that dreams in the Old Testament are referred to as something with supernatural significance, not like today, more from a human or a psychological perspective. The gist of the dreams in verse 5 to 11 is that he dreams of being top dog and uses an analogy of bundles of wheat that his brothers will bow down to him. He dreams that the sun and moon and 11 stars will bow down to him also, which brought even a reprimand from his dad. Ironically, Joseph's dreams do eventually come true, and these dreams hang over all we learn in the coming chapters. So once again, Joseph is sent to check on his brothers in the fields, and dressed in his new robe, off he goes. I don't know if Jacob realizes the degree of strife between the brothers that he is largely responsible for creating, but he will soon find out, and it will break his heart. When Joseph's brothers see him coming in verses 18 to 20, we read, They spotted him off in the distance. By the time he got to them, they had cooked up a plot to kill him. The brothers were saying, Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these old cisterns. We can say a vicious animal ate him up. We'll see what his dreams amount to. While we might understand their frustration with their younger brother, we have a hard time understanding their ruthless plot to kill him. The events to follow are chilling. Reuben, the oldest brother, is not in favor of killing him, but does agree to throwing him in the cistern. It seems Reuben's intention was to go back and retrieve Joseph and take him home, but he didn't get the opportunity. The other brothers grabbed Joseph, ripped off his fancy coat, and threw him in the cistern. A cistern was used for storing water for the dry season, similar to a well. They were about 40 feet deep, 16 to 8 feet wide. This cistern was empty at the time, so Joseph would not drown. But without a way to escape, the person inside would definitely eventually die. And then in verse 25, they sat down to eat supper. 
So let's picture the 17-year-old again. He's away from home. His older brothers have just torn off his robe and made a plan to kill him. There he sits in the bottom of an empty cistern, listening to his brother's conversation as they eat their dinner. Here's some of what he heard. Upon seeing a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt, in verse 26, Judah, the fourth oldest, says, Brothers, what are we going to get out of killing our brother and concealing the evidence? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not kill him. He is, after all, our brother, our own flesh and blood. It's interesting that he's morally opposed to killing Joseph, but selling him as a slave is something he can live with. We'll be seeing more of Judah in coming chapters. So Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave, and was taken to Egypt. Judah seems to feel a bit noble here, opter for selling his brother over killing him, yet it doesn't seem to cross anyone's mind the grief this action will bring to their father. When Reuben returns and sees that Joseph is gone, the deceit kicks into high gear and the brothers plan a bigger lie to tell their father. An animal is slaughtered, Joseph's coat is dipped in the blood, when the bloody garment is presented to their father, he believes that his favorite son has been killed by wild animals, as he has been told, but, and he refuses to be consoled. Can you imagine the very brothers who committed this heinous act trying to con bring comfort to their father? Once again, deceitfulness catches up with Jacob, and he's been beaten at this game now by his own sons. We end this chapter with Joseph, 17, separated from the family, sold as a slave, and headed to Egypt. He's sold to Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. His position as favorite son has been replaced with humble slave. What we know is Joseph was loved by his father. He was betrayed and sold for 20 pieces of silver, and he wore a robe of authority. He was mocked, left for dead in a cistern, and brought out. None of this is by chance and points us toward the one who gave the ultimate sacrifice for us in our sin. The next chapter, 38, is a brief diversion from Joseph's story and focuses on the brother Judah. Once again, deceit rears its ugly head in Judah's story. We remember he's the one who had planned to sell but not kill Joseph. And now Judah has set off on his own and has met and married a Canaanite woman. There's quite a bit that could be talked about in this chapter, but in trying to focus more on Joseph, I'll be brief in these details. One of the most important people in the story is Tamar, and we will see yet again God working his perfect plan through imperfect people. Judah had three sons, and the first son married Tamar. This son was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. There are no details given about the nature of his wickedness, but we can assume it was pretty serious for God to respond in this way. As was custom for men who died without having children, the younger brother was expected to marry his brother's widow. This kept the man's memory alive, kept his family going, provided a destiny for his inheritance, and produced offspring to look after the widow. Judah's second son was interested in sleeping with Tamar, but not as interested in fathering a child. It was in his best interest for her not to have a son, as this prevented his, 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 preserved his brother's inheritance for himself. This also offended God, and this son was killed as well. 
So Judah sends Tamar to, quote, live as a widow in her father's house and promises that as soon as son number three is old enough, he will give him to her as a husband. Yet, the deceptive Judah has begun to think that it's Tamar who is the bad luck bride here and not God himself who caused the two older brothers to die. Tamar, being sent as a widow, did not give her the full rights of a widow, meaning she could not remarry but was obligated to wait for Judah's youngest son. After Judah's wife died, he came to the city where Tamar lived, and she realized he was not going to keep his promise. She devises a plan to secure her own future and tricks him into sleeping with her. He thinks she's just a prostitute and when paid off will just disappear. He offers her a goat, and she asks for a pledge that he will make good on his promise. He gives her his seal and cord along with his staff. This is significant because the seal and cord represent his identity, who he was, and the staff represented his authority, both of which he was willing to give up in exchange for this brief encounter. When he finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he is indignant and orders her to be burned to death. In verse 25, she says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize whose seal and staff these are. Upon being presented with what would be a modern-day positive paternity test, <laughs> the seal and the staff, he realizes his broken promise to her and said in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. Here, Judah admits his guilt without blame or excuse, and Tamar has secured her position in the family. She gives birth to twin sons, which reminds us of the birth of Rebecca's twin sons. In verse 27 to 30 from the message, when her time came to give birth, it turned out there were twins in her room, womb. As she was giving birth, one put his hand out. The midwife tied a red thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But he pulled it back, and his brother came out. She said, oh, a breakout. So she named him Perez. Then his brother came out with the red thread on his hand, and she named him Zerah. So Perez is the actual firstborn and is listed in Matthew 1, 3, along with his father Jacob and his mother Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar was deeply loyal to Judah's family, and later in the line of Perez, we find Ruth, who has similar qualities to Tamar. They showed assertiveness in action, a willingness to be unconventional, and a deep loyalty to family, all qualities we find in their descendant, King David. Chapter 39 picks back up our story of Joseph. We remember he's a 17-year-old boy sold into slavery. He has a new master and a new country. He might remember the dreams he shared with his brothers, the ones where they all bowed down to him, the ones where he would experience greatness, yet they might have seemed like something in the distant past, something less likely to come to pass. He's gone from a favorite son to an unknown servant. Once again, a nod forward to the servant of all, who was God's only son. Yet in verse 2 we read, God was with Joseph and things went very well with him. His circumstances might not have felt like they were going well, yet God was with him. 
The meaning of God was with him didn't necessarily mean that Joseph felt God's presence, but that God was making things work out well for him. This isn't the first time we've read these words, God was with him, with the same meaning. In Genesis 21.20, when Hagar was in the wilderness with Ishmael and God provided water for them, we read God was with the boy, meaning on the boy's side as he grew up. In Genesis 26.24, when Abimelech and Isaac parted ways and Isaac's servants were trying to dig a well, there was quarreling. When an agreement had been made and Isaac had moved on to Beersheba, God appeared to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Don't fear a thing because I am with you. I'll bless you and make your children flourish because of Abraham, my servant. In Genesis 31.3, upon parting from Laban, God said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. We are sometimes prone to think that God is not involved in our hardships if we can't feel his presence. We ask him to intervene, and if we don't see evidence of change, we get discouraged and think he's not working. When we look back at the times he has intervened and has worked things out for our own good, we can see how much behind-the-scenes work was done that was not visible to our eyes. It takes faith to believe he is working when we don't see evidence, and Joseph is a good example of that faith. In Potiphar's house, his master quickly sees that God is with Joseph, and he was working for good in everything he did. Joseph didn't dwell on his hardship, but worked hard. He was industrious, diligent, obedient, creative, and he gave his best effort, a true example of the attributes of a good worker using the gifts God gave him. He was entrusted with all the personal affairs and possessions of the household, and because of Joseph, the home of the Egyptian was blessed. So Joseph has been returned to the position of favorite. It must have felt really good to be honored and appreciated for his hard work, and Joseph knew it was God who had made everything work well for him. But once again, Joseph's highs turn into a low. His youth, strength, and good looks have not gone unnoticed by Potiphar's wife. She aggressively pursues him, and he resists. In verses 8 and 9, he tells her, My master has put me in charge of everything he owns. He treats me as an equal. The only thing he hasn't turned over to me is you. You're his wife, after all. How could I violate his trust and sin against God? Jacob knew that everything was on the line here. He knew what was at stake if he gave in to this temptation. He did not want to violate the trust that had been given to him, and even more so, he did not want to sin against God. After being refused by Joseph multiple times, Potiphar's wife took advantage of a moment when the house was empty and they were alone, and she grabbed him by the coat. Here we go with that coat again. When temptation grabbed him, he fled, leaving the coat behind. There's so much we can say about fleeing temptation, but for now, let's just say sometimes you have to run. No talking, no reasoning, no explaining, just run. She, of course, uses this against him, falsely claiming that he tried to seduce her. When her husband got home, she told him the lies, and he believed her and was so angry he put Joseph in jail. There was no trial no due process, no witnesses to defend him. Yet in verse 
20 to 23, we read again, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Romans 8:28 comes to mind. We know that all things work together for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Or in Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will straighten your path. Joseph's path has had some twists and turns for sure, and yet at no time was it out of God's control. No matter what it might have looked like or felt like, God was in control. And Joseph was right where God wanted him at this moment, now in jail, for how we would use him next. It's been some time now, about 10 years, since Joseph has seen his home and family. He's in jail, falsely accused of wrongdoing. He refused to sin against God, yet there he is alongside two of Pharaoh's officials who have sinned against the king of Egypt. These men are guilty of something serious. A transgression against the king was not to be taken lightly. While Joseph's suffering seemed unjust, God still had a plan that was in the process of unfolding. These two officials were the king's cupbearer and head baker. They were responsible to provide the king drink and food, and his royal attendants had unique access to him. While in jail, each of these officials had a dream on the same night, and Joseph noticed they seemed troubled, so he asked them why the long faces. They replied they'd had some troubling dreams and did not know how to interpret them. The interpretation of dreams at the time was performed by magicians and sages, and there didn't seem to be any nearby to interpret these men's dreams. So Joseph, with God on his mind, said, don't interpretations come from God? Tell me the dream. So the cupbearer shares his dream first in verses 9 to 13 and receives a favorable interpretation from Joseph. He will live and be returned to the king's service in three days. Joseph asks him to mention him to Pharaoh so Pharaoh will get him out of jail because he's been stolen from his home unfairly. Next, the baker, hearing the favorable interpretation of the cupbearer, shares his dream. The interpretation in verses 16 to 19 is far less than favorable, and the baker's death is predicted in three days. After three days both come to pass, the cupbearer is restored, and the baker is put to death. It can't go unnoticed by the similarities to the story of Jesus. He was wrongly accused and put in prison. He was between two others on the cross, one guilty and one saved. The baker and the cupbearer represent the bread and the wine, and three days is the number of days between death and resurrection. We know that the whole Bible points to Jesus, and here we see such a clear example of how the story in Genesis clearly points the way. The chapter ends on a sad note, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We could talk for a while about the feeling of being forgotten, we can feel forgotten when we're in a difficult place and it doesn't feel fair and we're suffering unjustly. We can feel forgotten when we ask and ask for something we believe is God's will and it seemingly doesn't happen. Being in a place of waiting can feel like being in a place of being forgotten. And I'm sure that's how Joseph felt. And if that is you, 
here are a few words of encouragement. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Lamentations 3.22-23, the loyal love of Yahweh does not cease. His compassions do not come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Psalm 91.4, with his feathers he will cover you, and under his wings you can take refuge. His faithfulness will be a shield and a buckler. Joseph remains in jail another couple of years and is now 30 years old. Pharaoh himself has two dreams, and none of the magicians and sages in Egypt are able to interpret them. Finally, the cupbearer remembers Joseph and tells Pharaoh about him and that he had accurately interpreted the dreams of himself and the baker when they were in jail. Joseph was sent for, cleaned up a bit, and brought to Pharaoh, who asked him to interpret his dream. Once again, Joseph honors God in his response and takes no glory for himself. In verse 16, he says, not I, but God. God will set Pharaoh's mind at ease. Joseph refuses to take credit for God's work, and God honors his humility. The events move rather quickly from this moment. Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams, and Joseph accurately interprets them. He gives God the glory for his, this special gift and is be rewarded by being given a place of honor and authority in Egypt. Verse 41, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, more robes, and put a gold chain around his neck. Verse 44, Pharaoh told Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but no one in Egypt will make a single move without your stamp of approval. Pharaoh recognized that the Spirit of God was at work in Joseph and that wisdom is a gift of God's Spirit. Joseph remained faithful to God in the little things and in the big things, and God remained faithful to him. The remainder of chapter 41 describes the seven years of plenty and seven years of famine that were predicted in Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph was placed in a position of great authority and responsibility, and he led the country wisely through these years. We met Joseph in chapter 37 as a 17-year-old kid. He was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt, and now at the end of these chapters, he's a 44-year-old man married with two sons, the firstborn named Manasseh, because God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second son is Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph is leading, once again, one of the greatest nations in history. He was faithful in tending his father's flocks, prospering Potiphar's house, managing the prison, and now the entire nation of Egypt. The one who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. But stay tuned. His story is far from over. And before we go, um, I have a few kind of the big lessons to learn from the life of Joseph. You, you don't need to write those down. I do have those for you in your groups with a little explanation of each. Um, there's a lot here for us to learn and be encouraged by his words. So let's pray before we adjourn. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
recording here at the very beginning in Genesis, um, these stories that point to you. We thank you for the hope that we learn, that we see, that we read. We thank you that you're in charge, even when it's messy. Um, so be with us now as we break into our groups and as we share. Um, help us to um, remember that you are faithful, no matter what the circumstances can look like. In your son's name, amen. <laughs>